How do you respond when some men surround a church, lock the doors, light it on fire, and take the lives of dozens of Christians trapped inside? How do we respond when terrorists on motorcycles drive into a village that's predominantly Christian and spray everywhere they can with bullets from an AK-47, leaving a carnage of men, women, children? There are various uh, perspectives about how the world should respond to such persecution, opposition. Some people flee. Some people fight. Some people stand and take it. We don't face, typically, anything like that as Christians in this country. We do face in the perspective of some growing opposition. It seems sometimes that um, the government is squeezing us a little bit more and more. It feels like we are a little less able to express ourselves the way we might want to. There is some level of opposition. And in those cases, you get the same kinds of responses. Some people let it go. Some people stand and take it. Some people fight. In the midst of this disagreement and uh, discussion about how we ought to respond in these settings, sets this passage that we've read this morning from Luke's gospel. Jesus has been meeting with his disciples in the upper room last night of his life. He has poured out his heart to them as the gospels tell us. He has shared the, the, the first Lord's Supper with them. He has taught them. He has worked with them. He has uh, helped them. And now as he comes to the end of their time here and they're about to go to the garden to pray and then for him to be arrested, he says a, a curious thing. Hey, when I sent you out before, did you lack anything? Luke 10 tells us that Jesus sends the disciples out and says to them, don't take anything with you. Trust me. And they don't. They don't take anything with them. No provisions, no money, nothing to protect them. They just go. And they don't lack anything. And he asked them, do you you lack anything? He said, no, we didn't lack anything. He says, now, if you have a purse for money, take it. Now, get your supplies together. And take them. And if you don't have a sword, buy one. Because you're going to need it. Now that's an odd thing for us to hear Jesus say. Does he mean that we really ought to take up swords? All of us go buy swords or now in our culture buy guns and defend him. Is he saying that everything I've taught you up to this point you can forget? We're changing the whole thing now. Is he saying we're going to become a a militaristic movement? I don't think so. I think Jesus is simply saying, when I go to the cross, things are going to be different. 
When I go to the cross, I want to, you'll need to remember what the prophet said in Isaiah 53. He was numbered with the transgressors. And that's what I will be. I will be looked at as a criminal. And so will you. When you went out the first time, it was as though you were going out as, as groupies of a rock star. Everybody wanted to be around you. I mean, everywhere Jesus goes, people flock to him. They think he's awesome. They love him. In fact, if they think he's going someplace, they want to get there before he does. Jesus is the star. And if you're close to Jesus, it makes you a star. And I can see the disciples going out earlier and, and walking into a village and just saying, you know, we're friends of Jesus. Really? Come on to my, come to our house. Would you have, we'll fix you dinner. You can stay at our place. Listen, we'll go with you to the next town. It's kind of a dangerous road. We'll walk with you and protect you. If you know Jesus, we'll be, we're on your side. And Jesus says, now, because of the cross, the times, they are changing. And you need to understand that. Now, when Jesus said, talks about the sword, the disciples believe he means take swords. Because they say, Here's, we got two. And Jesus says, that's enough. And a lot of times that's interpreted as, well, two swords are good. That'll take care of it. If Jesus thinks two swords are going to protect them, he's out of his mind. You think, you hear the description of the crowd that comes to, to get him and arrest him. And he says, wow, what do you think I am? Bringing all these soldiers and people with swords and clubs. And I mean, you could have had me in the temple any day this week. Two swords aren't going to protect them at all. What he means, I think, is not, that, that'll, that's good, that'll do us. I think he means, that's enough talking about swords. It's not about swords. The message even translates it, something like that. Stop talking about swords. Enough with the swords, enough with the fighting. That's not what I mean, you've missed the point. I'm just talking about preparation, about being aware of the fact that things are going to be different. It's not about taking up swords. Isn't it interesting that Jesus talks about money and and supplies and swords and the only thing that they get are the swords? That's the only thing they, they are concerned about is the swords. And it reminds us that in their culture and in ours, it's all about power. You win with power. Whoever has the most swords, whoever has the biggest sword wins. Strength is defined by power. It's in their culture. It's in every culture. It's in our culture. Strength is defined by power. And you rule the world with power. I think that's why the disciples had this argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom. It's all about power. Who's got the most clout? That's our natural human instinct. To want to grab power. We believe we change the world through power. And that often leads us to a spirit of, we're going to fight. We're going to defend Jesus. We're going to fight for Jesus. There are places in Africa where, um, and probably other places too, where, but specifically there, where people have said, 
We're not taking this persecution any longer. And their response is to become persecutors. They become a group of vigilantes who terrorize people they believe are responsible for terrorizing them or are connected to them. And so there are stories of these vigilante people who say they're doing this in the name of Christ, just wiping out villages indiscriminately in some ways. Men, women, children. In order to say, we're not doing this anymore, and it, there is, it, it's evil, to be honest with you. But there are others who are not going that far, but are saying, enough's enough. Again, in places of Africa where the persecution is so bad, there is this, this movement of, for lack of a better term, it's just simply called not turning the third cheek. You know, Jesus says, if your enemy hits you on the right cheek, turn to them your left. And they're saying, you can hit me on the cheek once, you can hit me on the cheek twice, but not the third time. If you come at me the third time, then you're going to pay for that. I'm going to, we're going to fight back. We may even be aggressive about fighting back, but we're not going to let you keep doing this. And we need to be really careful, even as we talk about that, because something in us says, wow, that doesn't, maybe that doesn't sound right. Let's be honest, we don't go through anything like our brothers and sisters in these places go through. And we need to be patient. And we need to to give them a lot of space to deal with issues that we don't know anything about. We want to be careful not to judge their behavior. Now, the vigilante behavior, that's one thing. But just defending themselves and standing up for themselves and saying enough is enough. I mean, we have to be careful that we don't judge them because, quite frankly, we have no idea what they're going through. But we take up our own swords. We may not take up weapons like guns, knives. We use our tongues. We use the political machinery. We march in protests. And, and, and we, we, do our, we have our own swords that we use. We just think they're okay. Here's the problem. When, you, when we believe that strength is defined by power, you cannot help but the next conversation being about rights. I have a right. It's one of the most, it's the beginning to one of the most dangerous sentences for a follower of Jesus. When we begin our sentences with, I have a right to, we are in dangerous, we are on dangerous ground. Because almost every time it's going to veer us away from the cross. I mean, do we have rights? Sure we do. But as Christians, we are always remembering that Jesus had rights. Jesus had more rights than anyone. Paul says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself and took on the very nature of a servant and went to the cross. No one had more rights than Jesus, but he refuses to take them. He gives up his rights. And you and I are called to give up our rights. We get so tangled up in I have the right. I have the right to worship any way I want to. I have the right to say anything I want to say as a Christian. I have the right to to display Christian symbols on my desk in a hostile work environment. I have the right to wear Christian jewelry. I have the right to to special uh, 
treatment from the government. I, I have a right. And while there are times when exercising our rights might be appropriate, it's so easy for us to slide into the perspective of entitlement. I have a right. You see, underlying this whole mindset is an assumption that persecution and opposition are bad, are are the opposite of what we ought to expect as Christians. And we do everything in our power to try to eliminate them. But that doesn't seem to be the perspective of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel... Jesus says, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. John 15, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. They've hated both me and my father, but this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. In 1 Peter, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you as though something strange were happening to you. See, in our minds, opposition is, is atypical to the Christian life because we don't really face that much. And we've come to believe that it's normal to not have opposition and we, we do everything in our power to fight against it. And that's not necessarily wrong. I mean, we don't look for opposition. We're not walking around going, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian, somebody hit me. You know, we, we, don't, we aren't trying to entice people to persecute us. But we look at our brothers and sisters around the world and and we think their circumstances of persecution and opposition, that that's abnormal. When maybe it's possible that they're the ones who are normal. We're the ones who are atypical, aberration. We are so... We are so used to having everything. We are so used, we're spoiled with all the freedoms that we have that we come to believe that not being opposed is natural. The thing is, why would we think that? Because we are being opposed by the evil one and our lives are in direct conflict with the evil one who has power in this world. He's going to oppose us, as Jesus says. He's going to fight against us. That's what he does. And instead of thinking that abnormal, there are many people who believe that's one of the signs that we're on the right track. John Wesley used to, had that perspective If he went two or three days without someone throwing uh, some rotten vegetables at him or uh, tossing stones at him or or, uh, being attacked on the road, if he realized two or three days had gone by and none of that had happened, he would get off off his horse, get down on his knees and say, God, have I sinned? Is there something wrong with me? And we think he's out of his mind. And I don't know that we have to go that far. But we are so used to not being opposed in the way that we think that we have convinced ourselves that our goal is to eliminate opposition. But when you read the New Testament, I mean, for one thing, God uses persecution and opposition to spread the gospel. 
Acts 9, the persecution comes to Jerusalem, the church scatters, and, and the word of God goes all over the place. And God still does that in places of the world. But it's also a means of God's people to bear witness to those who oppose them and to those who are around them, watching them. How we handle opposition that comes against us is one of the most profound witnesses a Christian can have. And one of the African leaders said that Christians are people who take the cross of Christ on their shoulders until it leaves a mark. That's what we do. That's who we are. It's the way of Christ. But Jesus' warning to his disciples is not intended to instill fear in them. It's intended to make them more and more reliant upon him. That's one of the things that happens in when we're opposed and, and when there's persecution is that we realize we cannot handle this on our own. But sometimes in the midst of that, our initial reaction is fear. And we react out of fear. Peter reacts out of fear in the garden and swings the sword, cuts off the servant's ear. There is a sense of fear that leads us to feel like we have to defend Jesus. We have to defend the church. We have to defend the kingdom. We have to wave our swords and fight. And, and, but that's a, that's a defensive position out of a spirit of fear. We don't want Jesus to look bad. And so we do everything we can to make Jesus look good. We, we defend him. We fight for him. Because we can't have Jesus looking bad. And maybe we don't want to look bad. Maybe it's about us not wanting people to think that, that we can't defend ourselves. And the world says it, the way to strength is power. And if we refuse to grab power, they're going to look at us and say, what's wrong with you? You're fools. You're idiots. This makes no sense at all. What are you talking about? It's hard to take that. We want to jump in and say, well, let me show you. I cannot imagine how much restraint it took for Jesus as he hung on the cross and those who put him there mock him. You're the son of God? Come down, show us. Let's see it. Come on. I cannot imagine how much it took for him to restrain himself from doing that because we all know he could have. And it is a struggle for us. We don't want to be considered fools. We want to look good. But the way of the cross is not the way of the world. It's the opposite of that. It's a way of surrender and sacrifice. And, and when we are opposed, instead of seeing it as, as some curse from God, we realize that what it does is it drives us to our knees and it drives us to God that much more. And, and, it, and we realize how much we need him when maybe we've come to a place where we think, I'm good. You get that feeling about Peter. After Jesus warns them, Peter says, hey, Jesus, don't worry about me. Maybe these other guys, they're going to fall, but not me. I'll go to the death for you. 
I can almost see the smile on Jesus' lips. Not a laughing smile, but a sad kind of smile of Peter. Six, eight hours. You're going to deny even knowing me. It's not about preparation. It's not about preparing ourselves in order to fight. It's about preparing ourselves in order to love. Some of you are familiar with the name Joseph Son. He was uh, one of the leaders of the, of the church in Romania during the, uh, the communist oppression. He was arrested, tortured, imprisoned many times. He tells of one particular time when uh, he was uh, severely beaten and interrogated. And he got back to his cell. He threw a man. He fell on his face before God. He said, God, they're destroying me. I can't take this anymore. I can't do it. And he says that it was as though God spoke to him and said, Joseph, get up. Do you think the secret police are more powerful than the king of the universe? And he got up off of his face with a newfound fear. Not a fear of his enemies, but a sense of awe about God. And he walked into the next interrogation, a different person. And the interrogator could tell. And he said to him, you're so stupid, Joseph. I can't believe you're not giving in. I would have just, I would have just put a gun to your head right now. And Joseph said, okay, if you want to do that, that's fine. Because if you use your greatest weapon, I'll use mine. The interrogator said, you, your greatest weapon? You have a greatest weapon and you, you realize where you are? He said, yeah. He said, your greatest weapon is to kill me. My greatest weapon is to die. Because when I die, my blood will be sprinkled all over every sermon I've preached, everything I've ever written, and it will empower the church. And they let him go. They didn't know what to do with that. That's the spirit of someone who recognizes that preparation for opposition is not about fighting. It's about loving. It's about recognizing that God wins. That the kingdom is secure that following the cross is always ultimately the way of life. As I'm pondering all of this, I ask myself the question, what do we do with this? What, what, where do we do? Where do we go from here? And I want to make three suggestions to you. One of them is that we need to prepare ourselves for expected opposition. I don't know what that opposition will be. But it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't catch us off guard that the evil one is trying to get at us and to get at the church in every way possible. We ought to be prepared because we're expecting it. And, we, and, in that, and that preparation is to help us respond not with swords and fists, but with love and compassion forgiveness and grace. 
to respond with a spirit of truth out of a heart of love. Even when it means defending, we do it out of a heart of love, not out of a heart of hatred, bitterness. Second, we need to be advocates for our brothers and sisters who face far more persecution than any of us can ever imagine. I I cannot fathom what it means to be a Christian in places like North Korea, Nigeria, Central African Republic, other places of the world. I don't know what it means, what it feels like to wake up every morning wondering what you're going to encounter that day. But we we have so many of our brothers and sisters who do And we need to be praying for them and supporting them and and being uh, caring for them in any way we can. Let me encourage you as a part of that to sign up for uh, information, an email or to receive snail mail from organizations. I'll just give you three. Barnabas Fund, Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs. They do a great job of of sharing information, prayer concerns, what's happening in the world. You can trust what they say. We need to be praying for them and being advocates for them. Don Little is just, uh, is just completing a book, and one of the chapters is about how to help people who are being persecuted. And he was gracious enough to send me that chapter. And as I read through it this week, one of the things that, that struck me was he says that there's a difference that he found between people who are inexperienced disciplers in those settings and people who are experienced disciplers. And the people who are inexperienced disciples focus all of their attention on personal disciplines. Prayer, memorizing scripture, those kinds of things. Very important. But that's pretty much the gist of it. He said the experienced disciples don't ignore that, but they bring into the people's lives the church. That the church becomes the support network, the support base for getting through whatever they're facing. And we need to be a part of that. It's not so much about us as it is about us that we become advocates together. And third, we need to be advocates for everyone who is oppressed and vulnerable. I had a conversation in preparation for the sermon with Don and Ben Hegeman, and one of the things that they said to me is that a lot of the persecution that goes on in the world is is not against Christians, it's against it's it's from Muslims toward Muslims, and I just read yesterday that uh, in 2012, 75 percent of people who were murdered, killed for their religious beliefs, what took place was Muslims murdering Muslims, and we miss so much of that because we're just focused on ourselves. And one of the things that seems to come to light, the church gets a foothold and, and, and bears witness in a positive way is when the church cares more about, cares just as much, if not more, about other people as they do about protecting themselves. They aren't just trying to protect the Christians. They're protecting everyone who is oppressed, everyone who's vulnerable, everyone who is a target, the minorities around them. And even when it means that it's people who practice other faiths, people who have completely different lifestyle choices, the Christians are helping them and supporting them and, and protecting them and, and watching out for them in a way that 
other groups are simply not. And it sets them apart. And we have around us all kinds of people who are oppressed and vulnerable. Maybe they're oppressed by the systems of the government and they don't know how to function in the government and taking advantage of them. And other people taking advantage of them. And however much we may feel vulnerable, there are always other people who are more more vulnerable than we are. And to be Christian is to care not just about Christians, but about everyone. People who are oppressed and vulnerable need to know that Christ loves them and that we love them. And if we're going to stand up for someone's rights, instead of just thinking about our rights, we think about their rights. And we become advocates for people that we might not normally think about. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Christ. I'm intrigued when you get to this picture as Peter cuts off the servant's ear and Jesus heals him. It's important to understand that this is the ear of the servant of Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the number one nemesis of Jesus. Caiaphas is the one who instigates the arrest, the torture, the crucifixion of Jesus. Caiaphas is the one who, who has, is leading Israel away from Yahweh. Caiaphas is the Ahab and Jezebel of first century Palestine. And yet, Jesus stoops down picks up his Caiaphas' servant's ear and heals him. The way of the cross is that love conquers hate. And the way of Christ conquers every other alternative. Gracious Father, We pray that you will help us. It's a hard word for us. We pray that you will give us the eyes and the ears and the heart of Christ. Help us to rely on you. Help us to to care not just about ourselves, but about others. May your Holy Spirit work in each of our hearts. We pray this for the love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus. Amen.